Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. Amen. We do. We're so grateful for all of our fathers, grateful for my dad. And I pray that you're going to enjoy the day uh, as best as we can during this time where we're uh, asked to be a little farther apart than most of us would like, but pray that you have opportunity to spend some time. Call your dad, tell him you love him, and remind him of the impact that he's had in your life. You'd open your Bibles to Luke chapter 9, and while you're doing that, Luke chapter 9 will take the first 17 verses. I want to remind you, if you've signed up to go to Israel, which would be uh, in about two months by our original schedule, we have postponed that until April uh, of next year. That's April 7th, April 18th. And so you have a couple of options. You can go ahead and leave your deposit in, and you'll just simply be on the list uh, for that postponed trip. Uh, We're going to be taking the exact same itinerary, exact same stops, and you'll pay exactly the same price. So there'll be no price increase Uh, So if you want to do that, you can just simply leave your deposit intact. Uh, And if you'd like to uh, get a refund, we can do that for you as well. And so I just want to encourage you, if you haven't signed up, maybe you want to go, and now you have some time to think about it and would uh, like to get on the list, you can also do that. So just go to our website and make sure that you're signed up there at ccsouthbay.org forward slash Israel 2021. Jesus has just finished uh, the second of three trips that he's going to make through the region of Galilee. And during those trips, he's ministered to a vast array of people. And he's now going to come to a part that recorded in Matthew's gospel. Um, Ultimately, we'll focus on the Great Commission. But this is really, uh, for us as the church, a reminder that the Lord wants to both send and then see us serving uh, as as we embark on this journey ourselves. You see, Jesus and the disciples are in this region of northern Galilee, and we're about to follow Jesus to the furthest extent that he'll go north, up to this little town of Caesarea Philippi. During the time that these words were written, Herod the Great has passed away. He's left this region, the region of Palestine, as it was called by the Romans, He's left Palestine in the hands of his four sons. One of those sons we see in this passage, Herod Antipas. And so each of these four sons has a quarter of what was previously ruled by their father, Herod the Great, the Idumean king of Judea. And so each one of them has a quarter of it. And so they're called tetrarchs, tetra meaning quarter. And so we join Jesus, the 12 disciples, And we watch how the Lord now sends them out. Would you join me? We'll pray. And we'll pick up here in verse 1 of chapter 9. Father, we again just come. We need you. We need you to be our heavenly father. Lord, some of us have had great fathers and some of us have had maybe less than stellar fathers in our lives here on this earth. But Lord, we have a miraculous, wonderful, beautiful, heavenly Father that loves us dearly and deeply. 
And we pray, Father, speak to us as your children. Instruct us from heaven. Cause us to know uh, what it is that your spirit would speak to your church. Fill us, Lord, with your spirit. We can have that now that Pentecost has come. And so, Lord, we pray that you would fill us to overflowing and help us to receive your word with gladness. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 1, and he called his 12 disciples together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And then he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And so we, we find here the mission statement, if you will, for the church. This is what the church has been called to do. The church has been called not to get involved in social causes, not to get involved with trying to reorganize government. The church has been called to touch people who are sick and to principally preach the gospel. It's the word. Uh, The Lord has for us a, a picture here that I think would be helpful for us in our time right now where we find ourselves embattled with all of these things going on politically and all these things going on socially in our country. And they are all important. I don't mean to say that they're not because they are. They're very important. But the church needs to remain focused and focused to the calling with which we've been called. And that calling is to preach the gospel. It's to give people an opportunity to come to know Jesus Christ permanently and personally. It is for us to then embark on what Jesus says here in, in, in essence, as we're having it recorded for us by Dr. Luke. He, he gave them power, authority to go out and do spiritual things, to go out and heal the sick, to drive demons out of people's lives. And whether that's the demon of racism or financial inequity, or whether that's the demon that we face right now with this pestilence, COVID-19, or maybe you're going through a difficult time mentally, emotionally, financially, those things which would plague us. The Lord has given the church the opportunity to speak to these things and to accomplish the will of God. And so Jesus is focusing us in on what our real calling, our real mission is as we are sent out As he sends these 12 disciples, uh, the last, as we left them, they they leave this little town of of Garza or Gadara. And and as they they leave that town, they're going to go back and forth across the northern coast of the Sea of Galilee in this very localized region. And then they're going to travel from there to the north to Philippi. And on the first trip, Jesus was was wandering with four of his disciples. And he made it all the way to the southern end of the Sea of Galilee. On this trip, he's traveling with all 12. And so he, he's really speaking to them. He says, hey, guys, this is kind of what I want you to be about. This is what I would like you to do. And, and as he does this, he's also got a multitude that's been following. And we're going to see that Jesus is going to try and get away from that multitude for a little time with the disciples in our passage today as we journey down to verse 17 here in Luke chapter 9. And so this is the third year of the Lord's public ministry. It's the final year. And we're getting near the final week of Jesus' life as it's recorded here in Luke's gospel. It will take us the remainder of the gospel of Luke to get there. 
but we're getting down to the nuts and bolts of why the church exists in the first place. And so Luke is about to record these things that were important to Jesus. Notice the first one is the source of their might. The source of their might was not their political affiliation. The source of their might was not their denominational affiliation. The source of their might was not the location that they lived in. The source of their might was not their wealth or lack thereof. The source of their might was the Lord himself. The source of their might came from God. And I think it would behoove us as a church to remind ourselves of the source of the power of the church. It's not in our programs. It's not in our buildings. It's not in our bank accounts. The source of the power of the church is God himself. We have the power of the Holy Spirit. Pentecost has come. We've been endued with that power. We, we have the actual same power that caused the universe to exist from nothing available to us. And yet, so often the church gets hung up in trying to find some other power source, some other way to do ministry. And I want you to look at this group of 12 that's being sent out. And I think this is important to remind ourselves. These guys are like the Honey Boo Boo Brothers. They're, they're not intelligent. They're not learned. They have no degrees. They are about as disjointed a group of guys as you could possibly imagine. They come from different backgrounds. They come from different races. Uh, they, they, they come from all kinds of different walks of life, we might say. But they have one source of power, and that's Jesus. It's the Lord. The Lord was the glue that glued them together, and the Lord was the power that gave them the ability to accomplish what he asked them to do. And when the church starts looking to other things to gain power, and in our day and time, it seems as though the church is preoccupied with politics. It seems as though everything right now is who you're affiliated with politically. That is not the power source of the church. The power source of the church doesn't come from the office of the president of the United States. The power source of the church is the Holy Spirit. It is the spirit of the living God. And we need to remember that. The first century church would have gone nowhere had they simply tried to appease Rome. Had they attempted to make nice, if you will, with those that ruled over them. And so Jesus tells them, look, I'm going to give you. It's going to come from me, the ability to cure diseases, the power over demons. In other words, he was saying, look, the power of your might will be me. The second thing that we see here is their message. And again, this is so simple. And church, I want to remind you, if you're at a watch party right now, and we have a list of questions there on, the, on our website. So you go to that section, party, and you look at those questions. You can get engaged in understanding these passages for yourself by discussing these things. The message of the gospel is simple. That's what we've been called to be as the church. That's our prime directive, if you will. I shared this on Thursday night. If you missed it, go back online and watch it either on our YouTube channel 
or go to our live stream channel and watch that message. The power of the church comes from God, and the message of the church is the gospel. It's the teaching of the word. It's not all these other things. And I do not know as a pastor why we are so preoccupied, so moved away from the centricity of the gospel in the church and its power to transform lives. So Jesus says to them, verse 2, I'm going to send you to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. If we're not concerned about what God's concerned about, then the church is going to be missionless. If we're just another social organization that's attempting to affect change in our world and we don't have the power of God and the mission of God and the message of God, then we're going to miss what we've been called to do. I want you to notice also that the Lord was not looking to them for their mighty resources. There was a tremendous issue. Notice with me, verse 3, and Jesus said to them, he said to them, take nothing for the journey. How much did they take? Nothing. Neither staffs, nor bag, nor bread, nor money. And oh, by the way, don't take a suitcase. Don't even take two tunics. Don't take a spare change of clothes. And this is not because Jesus was against material things. It wasn't because those things didn't matter. It wasn't even because they weren't necessary to some degree. It was because Jesus wanted the disciples to depend on Jesus. On what would become the power of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer when the Holy Spirit came on Pentecost. The church has never been empowered by these other things. The church is not rich and therefore it can do work. The church is supposed to do the work and then if God blesses with the riches, you use those riches for his glory. So very often the church has it backwards. We think if we have a program or we do something to gain riches, that somehow then we can do ministry. No, we must do ministry first and then God adds the riches necessary for greater things. Jesus teaches his his disciples these three very simple things. He was the source of their might. He was the reason for the message. And he did not want them relying on anything, including money. The Lord changed all of these ground rules a little bit uh, from what Israel knew. But the, the inference was the same. The church of God has to be dependent on God. Church of God's not dependent on itself. It's not dependent on us to make something up. God's already told us what our mission is. He's prepared us for it. This little tiny land that these men are going out into would have been very easy for them to just come up with a program. Okay, well, Peter, James, and John, you guys take the south. And Andrew and and Matthew, you guys are going to go to the west. You can kind of see how if this were in our day and time and you took the Holy Spirit of God out of it, you took God's plan out of it, they would have probably divided up the area just like Herod did into quarters. Say, okay, you three go that way, you three go that way, you three go that way, and we'll go this way. That's not how God works. God works his way, and he works with his message. He works with his power, 
He works with his people, and he does exactly what he wants to do, and the message is his message. And we need to remember this. And so Jesus is now going to kind of tell them, if you will, how to get it done, how to get her done. So he conveys a specific message. Notice verse 4 and 5. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And whoever will not receive you when you go out from that city, shake the dust off of your feet as a testimony against him. In other words, Jesus is saying, guys, time is short. Don't waste it. Time is short. Don't waste it. The the method by which we should be moving with the gospel still to this day in our world is let's focus on doing what God has called us to do and nothing more and nothing less. I've watched people over and over again throw time, talent, and treasure into things that are bearing zero fruit. And I mean zero fruit. And frankly, one of those things is politics. I've watched the church become the political action arm of sometimes both political parties in our country. And they're so focused on the politics that they forget the message, they forget the method, they forget the might, and they forget what they're supposed to be doing, which is to preach the gospel and move and then preach the gospel again. And instead, we're trying to change our culture. We will not change our culture until the culture is changed itself, and that comes from the preaching of the gospel and the teaching of the word. We've got it backwards. We're trying to get Christians to become Christians without becoming Christians. It's like, well, if we just teach them morality, if we just change laws, if we just elect the the right people, If we just do all these other things, then people will get saved. No, you have to preach the gospel so they get saved, their heart gets changed, their mind gets renewed, and then they actually do think that way, and those things can be changed. But you cannot do it the other way. Why? Because the heart of man is deceitful. It's desperately wicked. Who can know it? And so until you change the heart of man, which only comes by the preaching of the gospel and the teaching of God's word, until you do that, then you are going to be on an endless cycle of wasting your time with other things. We need to preach the gospel. That's what the church is supposed to do. Now, do we get involved in social things? Of course. But that is after the fact. Job one is preach the gospel, teach the word, create people who are so strong in Christ that we will then do what God's called us to do and we will not be wasting our time. Notice the result of having this type of method in view. Verse six, they departed, went through the towns. What were they doing? Preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. You see, when you take God's method and and you do it correctly and you preach the gospel and keep moving, you don't get stuck in other things. You don't become what the church was never intended to be. Jesus never 
preached a political message in his entire ministry. Never. He didn't do it. We find no record of Jesus preaching against Rome. We find him confronting the false church, but not preaching against Rome or centurions or Caesar. He stuck to what mattered. And church, we have to stick to what matters and stop this nonsense that the church in America seems to be caught up in. The church needs to be about Jesus Christ and him alone crucified for the remission of sin. The truth of the gospel. The news of what was happening all over this land had finally reached the ears of Herod Antipas. Now I want to be really clear. Notice how much attention Jesus and the disciples give to Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas is one of the four sons that ruled this thing called the Tetrarchy, this division of quarters. Herod Antipas is the strongest of the four brothers. He rules from Tiberias on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, this lakefront community. His brother Philip is in the north at Caesarea Philippi, which will go there next. But these are the most powerful people in the region. These are the rulers. All kinds of opinions are being voiced. And what comes up is what happened to John the Baptist? Did he come back from the dead? You see, because Herod Antipas thought that he had managed to bump off John the Baptist, and he did. But so powerful was the message of the gospel that once that message started getting preached again, everybody's going, well, did we really get the right guy? There's something about this message. Verse 7. And now Herod the Tetrarch heard all that was being done by him. The him is Jesus, the disciples, and was perplexed. In other words, his mind could not grasp it. He could not get his head around this particular thing that was going on. It's like, man, we already killed one dude for doing this. What do we got to do next? John the Baptist was, was murdered for the message. What was the message? Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. That was the message. Hear him. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Hmm. Because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead, John confronted Herod because he believed that Jesus Christ was exactly who he said he was. That's why John said, I'm not even worthy to tie his sandals. Verse 8 goes on, and by some that Elijah had appeared. So now, now you get the picture. This mystery of what are these guys about? We can't kill them off. We can't bump them off. We can't end their, their voice in this world. 
Some thought that it was Elijah who had appeared. Other that one of the old prophets had risen again. Now, why do you suppose that is? This is an interesting thought. Because they had kept a very continuous message. Repent, turn to the Lord, be forgiven of your sins, and do what God asks you to do. The prophets had that message. Elijah specifically had that message. And Herod said, John, I've beheaded, but who is this whom I hear from whom I hear such things? And so he sought to see him. He still hasn't gotten it. This is not a new message. It's the same message. The prophets of old, John the Baptist, Jesus himself, all preached the same message. Let's turn to God. The message reminds the people of John the Baptist, the movement that they were undertaking to just go from place to place and share the simple truth. That reminded them of Elijah. The miracles themselves, maybe that reminded them of Moses. But it was all the central message. Moses got in trouble because he misrepresented the message, amen? He strikes the rock. He says, no, I'm not mad at the people. I love the people. And so Moses dies in the wilderness. He's buried on Mount Nebo. Not because he didn't take care of some political agenda, because he misrepresented God himself. Jesus was not just a prophet. He wasn't just even one that you could say was back from the dead. He was the son of God and he was the king of Israel. And so the children of Israel had known all of these things about God really since the garden. You can look at their history and go, God was faithful to tell them about himself the whole time. They go, wow, we don't really want this king to rule over us. We're going to hear that in a few short chapters. And Herod now is in his fortress that his father built at Machaerus, or maybe he's at Masada, we don't really know. Maybe he's in Tiberias, which is his normal home. But he's going, man, there's this dude out doing these same things again. Who is this guy? The truth is, the miracles were done so that Herod himself, Herod Antipas in this case, would know that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's all it was about. He's the Son of God. He's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He wasn't ready to admit that Jesus was the Christ but he also couldn't deny that someone was doing something that he couldn't explain. The same is true for the church. People may come to church, maybe they are not yet ready to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, but they can absolutely tell there's something different about what's going on in God's people. And for us as the church, we need to seize on that opportunity. It's mind-boggling to me how many people are running to the world for answers that have the answer because they claim to know Christ. Christ is the answer. It's not all these other things. 
Herod Antipas ends up being a tormented man, hoping that one day he was going to be able to see Jesus and maybe Jesus would do a miracle for him. He wasn't concerned with a changed heart. He just wanted to see something new. And quite frankly, I wonder if the church isn't caught up in the same thing today. I don't know that the church wants to see changed hearts. The church just wants to see something new. Not that those new things might even have noble uh, designs and desires. But the church is about Jesus. It's about the gospel. It's about lives being transformed in such a way that people look at what's going on and go, I don't know what's happening over there, but I want some of that. Notice verse 10. And the apostles, when they had returned, told him all that they had done. And he took them aside privately to a deserted place belonging to the city called Bethsaida. And so Jesus now has sent the disciples out. They've gone and done some ministry. It's a very short, extremely compact version of the disciples being sent out, called, sent on a mission. And and so they come back, and I I believe this location is Bethsaida Julius, which was named after the, the daughter of Caesar Augustus. It's a little tiny community. It's actually just being excavated on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, not very far from the entrance of the Jordan River into the Sea of Galilee. And it was just outside of Herod Antipas' jurisdiction. It was actually in Herod Philip's jurisdiction. And so Jesus moved just slightly north. It's if to say, okay, we've preached the gospel in this quarter of the territory of the Herod's control. We're going to move north, and we're going to take a little bit of a break. And so the table is set for these men to now serve, to put their faith into action, to do something with it, to to do some work for the Lord. You see, you can't do work for the Lord until you're devoted to the Lord. One of the great problems that the church faces is that we substitute service for devotion. You have to have devotion first in order for the service to have any effect whatsoever. Because if you're not serving with the right heart, if it's not the right methodology, if you don't have the Lord's mission in mind, then all of your serving really just simply becomes religious work. It's religious duty. The church isn't actually doing the work of the Lord. It's doing its own work, its own job, if you will. And so Jesus is about to help them set the table for this service what they would actually do for the Lord. And so they've moved to this little deserted place on the eastern side of the entrance of the Jordan River into the Sea of Galilee. It's very hard to actually get to. Even today, it's kind of a little bit secluded. So it's kind of in a floodplain. It's the reason they couldn't find the city for so long. It actually got buried by flood debris. And so they now move to this deserted place, a little bit of a vacation, a mini vacation, if you will. Verse 11, but when the multitudes knew it, now again, this is where some geography is very important. There's a reason the multitudes knew it, because these little tiny cities from Magdala to Tabka 
to Capernaum, to Bethsaida. Each one's about a mile and a half to two miles from the other. These are all in walking distance. It's not like Jesus had moved uh, 100 miles away and he's up on some mountaintop. He's literally gone on the other side of the Jordan River from Capernaum. And when the multitudes knew it, in other words, word got out, they followed him. Jesus had been healing people, driving demons out, people that had been possessed for their whole life, people that had medical problems for all of their days. You've got the, this woman at Nain. You have Jairus' daughter. Now, maybe they're all in the crowd. We don't know. But they were certainly able to be talked to. Can you imagine Jairus? Yeah, my daughter was dead. Matter of fact, I was really mad at Jesus. I thought he'd preferred this woman who had an issue of blood over my daughter who was dying. And I figured, man, there's no way this is going to work out well. And so the word of those things had traveled around. And they followed him. Notice what Jesus does. They had attempted to get away to a deserted place, go on a little vacation there in the desert, if you will. And he received them and spoke to them. What did he speak to them about? The same thing he sent the disciples to go do. The kingdom of God. And he healed those who needed healing. In other words, he's staying mission-centric himself. He said, look, I, I don't want you guys, I want you to watch this. I want you to see how we do ministry. I'm going to talk to them about the kingdom of God. That's what he's going to do. And when the day began to wear away, the 12 came and said to him, send the multitude away. I love this. Because this is so often what happens when you're doing ministry without the spirit. When you're doing ministry for the sake of church and not the sake of the kingdom of God. It's like, well, send them away. That they may go to the surrounding towns and country and lodge and get provisions, for we are in a deserted place here. They begin to look at what they can do humanly, not what they've been sent to do by the Lord, not the power that they have, not the resources they have. They begin to look at themselves as if they are the solution to the problem. In other words, they're looking through the eyes of flesh. They're not looking through the spirit at all. The day's getting well-worn. In other words, it's at the end of the day. Jesus is receiving. They're supposed to be on vacation. They're sitting on the other side of the shore of the Jordan River. They're just up from the Sea of Galilee. Nobody can actually get there easily. They actually have to ford the, the, river, the, the river itself at its widest point. Unless they went farther up the valley and came across and traveled many, many miles to get there. So these people probably waded across the Jordan River. They're soaking wet. They're, they're coming over to see what's going on with Jesus. And he preaches the gospel to them. He tells them of the kingdom of God. You see, you can't get into the kingdom of God unless you receive the good news of the gospel. They're, they're going to learn. They're going to get the same message that Joseph of Arimathea gets. They're going to get the same message that Nicodemus gets. They're going to get the same message the Philippian jailer gets. 
believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ be saved. But he says, look, disciples from their point of view say, let's get rid of them. It's a problem. It's extra work. This is too tough. It's too hard. And notice what Jesus says. But he, Jesus, said to them, the disciples, you give them something to eat. Here's what I want you to do, guys. I want you to actually take care of their need. Notice the order. The kingdom of God is preached. They learn about the Lord. The good news is shared with them. And then he says, well, let's make sure they don't think this is a hollow message. The church's message will always be hollow without the preaching of the gospel. Matter of fact, I would say it doesn't matter. We just become a social club. Might be a really good social club. We might even have some truth mixed in there. Without the gospel, we've missed the message. Without the preaching of Christ for the remission of sin, we've missed the real message. Because you can't get into the kingdom of God without the good news of the gospel. And so we know Jesus told them the good news. He wouldn't be preaching the real kingdom without telling them about the real king. And they said, but we have no more than five loaves and two fish. It's a very famous passage. Probably many of you know what happens next. Unless we go and buy food for all these people. Notice how they turn immediately within the context of what Jesus has told them. Look, the power's me, the message is me, the method is me, the movement is me, the mystery of this is all me, but we can't do it. We don't have anything. Church, we never have anything. All we have comes from him. Everything we are is because of him. The truth we speak is his. The message is his. The reason that we live and move and breathe is him. And immediately, and so I hope this gives you a little bit of hope, Immediately, the disciples who've hung around now with Jesus for two plus years, the first place they turn is the arm of flesh. Well, we don't have any food. We got five loaves, two fish. Send them away, or we got to go to the grocery. We're going to Vaughn's. We're heading to Costco. We need a big, huge truck right now, Jesus. For there are about 5,000 men. Now, to put this in the context of the day and time, that would have meant that there were 5,000 men, plus likely many of their wives and their children. So this is a crowd of at least 10,000 people. Could be double that. But let's just say, for the sake of argument, it's at least double the five, it's 10. 10,000 people show up at your house. I guess you're probably going to look at what's in your cupboard too. You're probably going to go in, 
Well, honey, I hope you can slice the bread thin. I don't know what we're going to do with this lunch meat, but it's not going very far. So they weren't wrong in looking at their resources, but they were wrong in the conclusion that they came to. You see, because nothing in the hands of Jesus is something. But everything in the hands of man can do nothing without him. And so Jesus says to his disciples, make them sit down in groups of 50. Now, remind yourself, they've got five loaves and two fish. And probably the disciples are going, oh, this is not going to work out well. And so they did and made them all sit down. And he took the five loaves, the two fish. And he went to see if other people had more loaves and fish. He looked at him, he said, oh, this is hopeless. No, he took the five loaves, the two fish, and he looked to heaven. Jesus took the, the meagerness and he said, Look, this meagerness in my hands can feed a multitude. He took the loaves and he took the fish and he looked up to heaven and he blessed and broke it and gave it to the disciples to set before the multitude. And so they all ate and were filled. They, they all didn't get like a little crumb. They all didn't get like two scales off of a fish. They didn't get a crouton and a scale. They ate until they were filled. And furthermore, just so that the disciples would remember what they'd already learned, which there's a method to this. There's a power source. There's might to this. There's a central message to this. So the disciples would remember that Jesus goes overboard. And 12 baskets of the leftover fragments were taken up by them. It's as if Jesus personally said, look, you didn't have anything when you got here. And if you're relying on yourself, you're still not going to have anything. But if I'm here and we've got nothing, we have everything we need. And to prove the point, he said, Peter, here's your basket. And John, here's your basket. And James, here's your basket. And Andrew, there's your basket. And Matthew and Judas and the other Judas. Here, guys. This is what you can accomplish with me. This is what I can do. Without me, you can't do anything. But by me and through me, you can do all things. He was teaching them a spiritual truth. Their vacation in the desert was short-lived and Jesus is speaking to them. He says, look, you guys just see this whole thing as a bunch of people problems. You're seeing a bunch of lousy work and I'm seeing sanctified service. You're seeing something that's hard that needs to be done. I'm seeing the needs of people who need to be ministered to. It's almost as if the disciples had turned into socialists or maybe communists. It's like, man, we don't have enough for everybody. How are we supposed to divide this up? 
You can almost see in the back of their minds, they're probably thinking, well, you know, hey, well, you know, you got the, the working class can sit over here and the underprivileged can sit over here and the industrialists over here, and the capitalists over here, and those who are mightier than everyone else over here and the people politically connected can be there and the unemployed can go over here and we'll just figure out who's the most deserving. We'll take the five loaves, the two fish, and we'll divide them up as best we can. And Jesus is saying, no, I want to meet every single need. I don't care that they were previously unemployed. I don't care whether they work today. I, I don't really care if they have great ideas or no ideas. I just love them. I just love them. I came here for all these people. The disciples are going, well, they're worthy and they're not. And they're kind of sort of worthy and they're kind of sort of not worthy. And those people over there, we should feed them, but we should skip those guys because they're lazy. And the net result, the disciples say, well, send them all away. You see, Jesus, I think, is speaking to the church through this passage. The disciples are probably thinking, man, something happened to Jesus. His brain is like baked in the desert sun or something. And Jesus is saying, no, I, I care about these people. They came here and, and they need the message I have. And you guys are keeping me from preaching the message because all you see is the work. Can I remind you of a truth? That's one the church needs to remember. We don't produce anything. We're just simply the distributors of the goodness of God. What we have came from him. What we have should glorify him. And what we have doesn't belong to us. That's the message that Jesus gave the disciples. Saying, look guys, you didn't have anything when you got here. Except for me. And I'm sufficient for the needs of these people. Stop looking to yourselves. Where did Jesus look? He didn't look at the fish. It doesn't say he stared at the loaves. He didn't just look at the fish and go, man, I hope these turn into whales. He go, I hope this, these five loaves turn into an entire bakery. No, where did he look? Heaven. And it was because he looked to heaven, he was reminding us of what we're supposed to do when these things come into our lives. We're supposed to look to heaven. You got to go with what you got. He didn't say go get more food. He said, look to heaven. He said, I'm going to look to heaven. Let's take what we have and pray over it and ask God to bless it. Because look, the truth of the matter is, as Jesus will tell us in Matthew's gospel, he is the bread of life. And he's more than sufficient. Our problem is we don't often see God as being sufficient. We have to have all these other things. No, he's our sufficiency. He himself is sufficient for our every need. That's why the leftovers were there. Jesus didn't just meet the need. He exceeded the need. He didn't just take care of the people. He blessed the people. He wasn't just good enough barely. He was extravagant to meet the needs of people. But if you'd have left it to the disciples, no one would have gotten fed. 
We have to remember these lessons. God gives us a certain amount of resources, but those resources in the hands of the Lord can be enough if we'll give them to God and say, God, this is your problem. These are your people. You're the producer. We're just distributors. If you want to take care of this need, God, you need to do it. Doesn't mean we don't work hard. Doesn't mean we don't plan. But it means first and foremost, central to all of this, is the message. The methods of the Lord. Because our meager messes, the things that we make, which are often not good, can become mighty miracles if we give them to the Lord and say, Lord, you need to do something. This, this miracle was enough to feed the famished to feast. Jesus can do that. But we have to do things his way. What were the results of this? And we'll close with this. What were the results? What really happened here? I think the first thing that comes to my mind is Jesus looks up to heaven. And it's almost because he can see things we can't see he's God, amen? Can you imagine him looking up and seeing his father's face just smiling, beaming from ear to ear? Nodding with approval, maybe winking, I don't know. But I know he was gazing up to heaven and Father God just going, that's it. That's what the people need. They need a message of the kingdom. Let's give them the provision for these things so that they'll know the message of the kingdom is true. As the disciples went around to the crowd till the last little hungry kid that was sitting over on the side got more than he could possibly want. They watched blessing after blessing after blessing as God met every single need. That's a life of faith. That's a life that says, Lord, only you can do this. But what you do, you do well. Verse 17 kind of explains the whole scene. And they all ate and were filled. And there was 12 baskets of leftovers. Do you believe God can still fill your empty basket? Do you believe God can still do miracles? Do you believe God can wipe out the coronavirus? Do you believe God can get us out of this lockdown? Do you believe God can heal the racial injustice in our country? Do you believe that God can fix what is coming, which is this mammoth freight train of a destroyed economy? Do you believe God can take care of that? Because frankly, I don't believe our, our country can. I don't think our Congress has a clue. I don't believe our governor can solve these problems. I believe Christ can. And so that's where my eyes are fixed. My eyes are fixed on heaven. They're not on this earth. Because when I look at this earth, I'm just like the disciples. It's like there's no way this is working out. But when I look to heaven... Well, God, you could fix this easy. You could speak a word and these things could all be handled. But he's going to speak that word so that he can preach the gospel. 
He's going to speak the word so that men can come to the knowledge of sin and repent and be saved. He's going to speak that word, not just for social reform. He's going to speak that word because we need heart reform in this country. Let's be busy about our father's business. Let's take that message and let's preach it to this world and see mighty miracles. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you and we cry out to you. Lord, I want to pray for those that are perhaps listening right now, watching online, and maybe uh, somebody said, hey, why don't you watch this message? Why don't you tune into this service online and maybe you for the first time heard the good news of the gospel that Jesus actually loves you and he came to this earth to die for your sin that if you would believe in him confess your sin he'll forgive it adopt you into his family without you we have pastors online right now that would love to pray with you and Send you a Bible, get you started on that journey, walking with the Lord. That would be the first miracle that needs to happen in your life. The Lord, our country needs miracles. Our world needs miracles. But we want those miracles to account for something. And so we pray that your church would be busy about what you're concerned with. And that's the lostness of mankind, the brokenness that can only be healed by having a heart that's been changed. And so, Lord, we give you our lives fresh and new and pray that you would call us out and that you would send us and that we would serve you. We ask all this in the blessed name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.